Hey, Mosaic family. I'm glad that you're here with us tonight. I'm glad that you turned on the screen and you're worshiping with us tonight. Um, I wish I could see you, but I'm excited next week to be able to see you in person. My name is Scott Jones. I am the student team leader here at Mosaic. I'm here with Dana Dortz. Um, we both are on the family team, and we're excited to see more kids next week. Uh, but first, a couple announcements, um, one regarding kids. So September 2nd, which is coming up this Wednesday, is the first cell group for all 6th through 12th grade students. We are meeting live in cell groups. There's a lot of COVID restrictions that are happening, but we are meeting live. So if you have any questions about that, please contact me or Janie Crow. We would love to talk to you about getting your student plugged into a cell group. We don't have student services or kids services when we come back live next week. And so we're excited to see you here with us in the worship center. I know that's gonna be a little different for you, but we just wanted to say welcome. We're excited. We love you. We're gonna have fun with you here. Um, and I want Dana to be able to just kind of welcome the kiddos before she prays for our service. Yes, so thanks, I mean, Dana. for the last six months, You've been at home worshiping with your family. I mean, that is really awesome. So when you come to the church building next week, it will be no different. You'll be worshiping with your family, but in our church building. Isn't that exciting? That is so exciting to me because we, we have missed seeing our kids of Mosaic. I mean, we are so excited to see you. We'll see you in the parking lot. We'll see you in the foyer as you walk through, we'll see you in here as you're singing the songs and worshiping God with your family. So we hope if it's not on your plan, start asking your mom, your dad, whoever, to bring you to church next Saturday. Well, how about before we do anything else, let's pray and just um, invite God here. Dear Lord, thank you so much for your presence today. Thank you for your goodness that is in our lives. We are so grateful for the privilege we have to worship you and to recognize you as our Father and our Creator. Lord, as we listen to your word, may we be open to hear your voice. And may our responses glorify you. Lord, we just give you this time as we open our hearts and open our minds Lord, and just to, just to be in worship with you at this time. We pray all these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you guys in. Our God is a lion, the lion of Judah. He's roaring with power. And fighting our battles, every knee will bow before Him. Our God is the Lamb, the Lamb that was slain for the sins of the world. His blood breaks the chains, every knee will bow before the Lion and the Lamb. Every knee will bow before Him. Come on, we believe it. He's coming on the clouds. He's coming on the clouds. Kings and kings will bow down. 
Every shame, every shame will break as broken hearts declare His praise. But who can stop the Lord Almighty? Come on, our God is the Lion, the Lion of Judah. He's roaring with power and fighting our battles. Every knee will bow before Him. Our God is the Lamb, the Lamb that was slain for the sins of the world. His blood breaks the chains. Every knee will bow before the Lion and the Lamb. Every knee will bow before Him. Oh, I'd open up the case. Open up the case. Make way before the King of Kings. The God who's come. The God who's come to save. Is here to set the captives free. For who can stop the Lord Almighty? Our God is the Lion, the Lion of Judah. He's roaring with power and fighting our battles. Every knee will bow before Him. Our God is the Lamb, the Lamb. For the sins of the world, His blood breaks the chains. Every knee will bow before the Lion and the Lamb. Every knee will bow before Him. Who can stop? Every knee will bow before you. Every tongue will confess. There will not be a soul 
ever to walk this earth that does not recognize you as king and recognize you as Lord. Oh God, how big you are. How majestic is your name in all the earth forevermore. As far as the east is from the west, so your love will not be thwarted. So your glory will be seen. Oh, how we worship you with gladness tonight. Amen. So wherever you are, however your day has been, whatever fears, whatever stresses or anxieties are going through your mind or running through your heart today, I just want to invite you to stand in awe of our King, Mosaic. Maybe you've heard about Jacob Blake. Maybe you're mourning another death. Maybe you're mourning injustice in other ways. Maybe you've seen it play out in lives of people that you know, people that you love. Maybe school starting back has caused you to spiral down into a lot of worries and anxieties and, and maybe this has been just like the happiest, most freeing week of your quarantine 2020 COVID experience so far. But however you come to the screen with your family, with your friends to worship tonight, whether you are mourning injustices, whether you're rejoicing because of ways that God has continued to be faithful in your life and maybe you're somewhere in between. I just want us to sing in one voice together a song that I love because it simply worships God for being majestic and for being big and for being greater than we could ever see and ever know. There's something about in the, the most high moments of our experience and relationship with him and also in the lowest of lows to be able to say, I stand amazed by you, Jesus. As I'm in your presence, Jesus, I am moved, I am changed. There's something powerful about that. So you don't have to stand, you can sit, but if you want to, would you be so bold as to even stand in your living room as we sing this hymn together? I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus. Let's be in awe of our King tonight. In light of the pain, in light of the injustice, in light of the fears, in light of the illness, let's be in awe of our King whose plans are not thwarted ever. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me a sinner condemned unclean how marvelous how wonderful and my
sin. Sing the gospel. He took my sin and my sorrows and made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. Singing how marvelous, how wonderful and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. When with your ransom Your kindly rule has 
battered and broken, the curse of sin's tyranny. My life is hidden. Come on, this is good news. My life is hidden. Yes. These heaven shadows, your crimson blood covers me. Your crimson blood covers me, yeah. Glory, glory, we have no other king but Jesus, Lord of all. We raise the anthem, our loudest praises ring, we crown him I thank you that in you I have one. Lord, uh, I woke up in a world that needs a saving Lord. And I thank you that in you we have one. We do look forward to the day that you come again and every knee does bow and every tongue does confess that you are Lord, that your glory does reign and that your rule is right. 
But until that day, Father, we wait for you to come, but we wait faithfully and expectantly and hopefully, knowing that you're at work even now. So would you do your work your way? Would your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? We'd ask that to begin even through these minutes that we open your word. Would you shed more of your ruling and loving reign over our lives through your word? We give ourselves to this time, knowing that you've given your word to us for our good. It's in your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, Mosaic, I hope you're doing well this evening, and it's so good to be with you, at least virtually, and we are quickly coming to a place where we'll be able to see uh, each other face-to-face again, even next week, for those who are ready. And if you're ready, we're ready, and look forward to saying hello to you and seeing you then. Let me ask you something. How would you describe something to a person who has absolutely no context for it? In other words, How would you describe yellow to a person who was born blind? Well, in 1986, I found myself leading a small mission team for about six weeks in the former Soviet Union. Now, it was during a time before the Iron Curtain had come down, and so the Communist Party had successfully locked down their citizens under a cone of silence, and they had no idea what was happening outside the world that uh, they were told by the Communist Party. And there I spent the next six weeks living in Leningrad, which is now St. Petersburg, and I met a young man named Anatoly. He quickly told me that his friends called him Tal. Tal and I began to spend time together, and over the course of weeks, he came to place his faith in Jesus Christ. That meant that I had the privilege of every morning, early morning, getting up and meeting him in secret as we went through uh, the kind of the basics of the Christian life. Uh, Tal was 22 years old and engaged. At the time, I was 22 years old and engaged. And so we swapped a lot of stories back and forth about our lives. And one evening, I found myself at his family's one room or one bedroom, tiny flat, as he was cooking for us over a one-burner gas stove. And he turned to me and he said, uh, tell me, Mark, do you like to cook? And I said, actually, Tall, I don't cook. I just microwave. And he looked at me kind of puzzled and said, what's a microwave? And I said, well, it's, a, it's an oven that's kind of like a, a box and you, you plug it in and you put your food in there. And in about two minutes, it cooks your food without heat. All you do is turn a dial. And he started laughing at me. And he said, oh, you're joking. He said, I only wish some kind of magic machine like that could be invented one day. You see, Anatoly had no context for anything that I was trying to tell him. Well, listen, that's no big deal when it comes to small things like microwaves. But, but what about at those times that it comes down to life and death issues? Things like eternal destiny. Well, this is where we find ourselves in our Clarity series tonight. We've been looking through this last portion of the series at the movement of the church as it expands the mission of Jesus. Now, in the book of Acts, which is where we're finding our stories of the church, we see in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that the mission of Jesus is real clear, that we as a church are to live as his witnesses. It's said in Jerusalem, that's home base, in Judea, in Samaria, but then all the way out to the remotest parts 
of the earth. The farther the gospel traces to the remotest parts of the earth, the less context the hearers have to receive this good news truth of Jesus. It almost becomes stranger than trying to explain a microwave to Anatoly. Well, Paul finds himself in that situation in the city of Athens. The story is found in Acts chapter 17. Paul finds himself in Athens alone. His teammates, Timothy and Silas and Luke, well, they've stayed behind about 250 miles away in Berea. And he's there waiting for his team to catch up so they can resume the rest of their missionary journey. And in that time of waiting for them in Athens, we pick up the story in Acts chapter 17, verse 16. Acts 17, verse 16 begins our story with this. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens... He was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Athens is the center of the Greek culture and intellect of its day. Now, Corinth in, in Greece was the leading city economically and politically, but Athens, it still had kind of the primary spot of, of where the culture was intellectually and philosophically. It controlled the art the literature, the philosophy, and the teaching that came into the Greco-Roman world. Athens was home base to famous names like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and Epicurus and Zeno. In fact, about 400 to 500 years before Paul arrived in Athens, Athens was the center of the Greek empire. Now it had shrunk down to a city of only about 10,000. And yet that 10,000 very influential throughout the entire Greco-Roman world. Think of it this way. If in our culture, if Washington and DC, uh, Washington, D.C. and New York City was uh, something like Corinth, uh, we would see something like L.A. and Seattle, more like Athens. Athens attracted the intellectuals and the philosophers from all over the world, and it was the home base of the famous Parthenon. Can you picture that famous image? The Greek Parthenon, which was home to the, to the Greek gods. Now listen, to a modern person like us, Greek mythology has a curiosity at best. It's the stuff of young adult fiction novels that are written. But for Paul's day, Greek mythology was the dominant worldview. It is how they saw life and God. And while Paul was waiting for his teammates in Athens, the streets are filled with idols. And so on every corner in front of every shop in the marketplace, there was a statue to one of the 12 gods of the Greek Parthenon. Now, before you roll your eyes at the ancient world's superstition, I want you to imagine that uh, a thousand years from now, an archaeologist is digging in around Fayetteville, Arkansas, and uncovers a statue like this. Yeah, let's be honest. They're going to see that stadium and the statue of those Razorbacks, and they're going to think that they've uncovered a Northwest Arkansas ancient worship site. And maybe for some, they would actually be correct, because there might be some of us where the allegiance to our team even borderlines on idolatry. Hey, you know how you know? You know you're, you're teetering on the, uh, the wrong side of the line when your happiness factor rises and falls 
on your team's win-loss record. Well, how does Paul respond to the idols that he sees in the culture in Athens? Far from mocking them, far from judging them, Paul, the text tells us, is greatly distressed. In other words, his, his heart is heavy because of the spiritual condition of the people. He knows that they are burdened down by the weight of gods that cannot save them, that they are carrying the load of idols that can bring no life to them. Paul is moved by the spiritual condition of the city. So let me ask you a question. Are you moved by the spiritual condition of your city? Do you look to the left and to the right and feel the weight of people who are trapped without the freedom of the saving knowledge of Jesus? Because our culture has idols too. Tim Keller says it this way in his book called Counterfeit Gods. He says, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give to you seek to give you what only God can give. And oh my, that tells me that the idols in our culture they come in all kinds of say, uh, shapes and sizes. Our culture we bow the knee and the heart to work and finance, to family and children, to leisure and travel, to beauty and fitness to the idols of sex and entertainment, sports and hobbies and power and recognition. You see, just like the ancient Athenians, these are simply created things. Created things that we look to to give us the kind of life that can only come from the creator himself. So when you as a believer in Jesus Christ who's declared his lordship over your life, when you find yourself succumbing once again to one of those idols, does it greatly distress your heart? Enough to cause you to turn back towards your creator. When you look around at your city and you see your neighbors and your friends and your coworkers giving themselves to, to God's little G that can't give life to them, does it burden your heart enough to cause you to to want to introduce them to the creator that you know. Look at how Paul moved after he was moved in his heart. Verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be here. That's Paul's pattern for ministry. He starts in the synagogues with the Jews and the Jewish converts, and he reasons with them. He reasons with them from their starting point. Their starting point would be the Old Testament and their understanding of the story of Yahweh. And he starts with where they are and their worldview that's wrapped around the Old Testament in Yahweh, and he introduces the saving knowledge of Jesus to them. But then he leaves the synagogue and he goes out to the marketplace and and there, the people's starting place would be totally different. They don't have the knowledge of the Old Testament, and they don't know the story of Yahweh. So Paul has to meet them in a different kind of way. 
Both of them, those groups, don't know Jesus. But he has to start in different ways to approach them. Listen, you have been assigned by God in a similar location. You live around friends and neighbors who maybe have a, a background in the story of God. Maybe they even have a church background, but they don't know the saving knowledge of Jesus. And at the same time, you have coworkers who, who don't understand the story of God. And you have to approach them very, very differently. The truth is, our city is filled with transplants who come from around the country. They come even from around the globe. And geographically, we may be living in the Bible Belt. Oh, but the neighbors and the coworkers we live around, they are far more spiritually diverse. Maybe there's something we can learn from how Paul did this kind of ministry in Athens. Look at how verse 18 begins. As people begin to respond to Paul, it says a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Hey, you know we have Epicureans and Stoics who live among us today. We do. My grandkids discovered Disney Plus during the quarantine shutdown. And I got to tell you, I'm glad they did because I really like watching Disney movies with my grandkids. But my favorite is still The Lion King. You know, it stars two Epicureans and one Stoic. Uh, the two Epicureans' names are Timon and Pumbaa. Uh, the, they represent the Epicureans because the Epicureans believed in God but, or in the gods, but they believed that the gods were detached from them, that they weren't involved in day-to-day -day life, that there was no life after death. They were thorough materialists, and all the only point of life was just to pursue happiness and freedom. And happiness happened when there was no pain in life and no worries. Yeah, Timon and Puma, Akuna Matata, very Epicurean. But on the other hand, they had met a friend who was a Stoic. His name was Rafiki. And he, they believed, the, the Stoics did, that the gods were everywhere and they were in everything. The Stoics were pantheists. They believed that all of creation was connected by this divine principle that they called the Lagos, uh, that held everything together in a great circle of life. Listen, those were dominant think uh, worldviews that existed among the people that Paul was trying to minister to. And he knew enough about those worldviews and understood them enough to engage them respectfully and thoughtfully. Look at how 18 continues. It says that a group of Epicurean, Stoic, and philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Listen, Paul's starting point with people might have been different, but his ending point was always the same. It was Jesus Christ and his life and death and resurrection. He started where people were, whether they were lost and steeped in Judaism or the lost and steeped in other kind of philosophical Greco-Roman thinking. He'll start with where they were, but he always brought them to Jesus Christ. 
And you notice that Paul didn't argue their worldview. No, he pointed to Jesus. That's why the text tells us that Paul was preaching not the wrongness of their life, but the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. So in the synagogue, he would start with the Old Testament and bring them to Jesus. But out in the marketplace where they knew nothing of Yahweh, he started where they were and pointed them to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. It's a great model for us. We engage our culture by understanding their worldview and then pointing to Jesus. So how do we do it? Well, look at the next verse, verse 19. The story continues. Then they took Paul and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So Paul stepped courageously into the Areopagus. If you're looking at a King James Bible, it says he stepped courageously into Mars Hill. That's because the Areopagus was this hilltop court that was used for public debates and trials. The Areopagus was a place, but it was also a a function would be like when we say in our world, Wall Street. We know there's a place, but we also know that it's a function. And, and Paul stood on the culture's turf and he spoke about the truth of Jesus. Not because he loved debating, but because he loved God. And he loved the people whom God loved. And he wanted to bring the light of Jesus to them because he was, remember, greatly distressed over their lostness. Listen, we live and work and play on the culture's turf. The ideology of our day is not bent towards biblical truth. So the question is, do you see your job, your home and neighborhood, your, even your hobbies as a platform to stand and bring the truth of Jesus to your neighbors and coworkers. Because just like Athens, our culture has a worldview. We need to understand what, what our neighbor's worldview is. How do you do that? Well, the easiest way I know is to, to think about it this way. All people have a vision of the good life. And that vision of whatever they call the good life is their worldview. So, for example, my city has a vision of the good life. That vision of the good life usually wraps around a happy and healthy family, a successful and prosperous career, and hobbies and activities that they enjoy. By the way, that's what made COVID so threatening. It touched and shook the idols, all three of them, a happy, fam healthy family, uh, the, the security of a prosperous career, and for sure it shut down doing leisure activities and, and uh, travel and interests. What does Jesus tell us about chasing all the things of life that we think are the good life and catching them? Well, he says it this way. What does a prophet, a man or woman, to, to gain the whole world to grab and catch their vision of the good life, but at the same time to lose 
their own soul. You see, idols can't deliver the life that only God the Creator can deliver. And Paul, he was moved by the spiritual condition of his city enough to move into the spiritual condition of his city. How? How'd he do it? Well, this is where the rest of the passage gives us incredibly practical coaching on how we can live in our city. Look at verse 22. Paul then stood in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. You notice how Paul starts? He doesn't start by insulting them and their worldview. He doesn't start by saying, are you kidding me? Look around. This is ridiculous. These are just statues. These aren't gods. No, his approach is very different. He says, men of Athens, I was walking around and I have been observing carefully your world. And I can clearly see that you're very religious. In fact, you're so religious, you're covering every base in your devotion. You, you even have a, a statue dedicated to an unknown God. Well, listen, I have come to tell you about this unknown God whom you do not yet know. You see, in the Athenian world, there was no absolute truth. Well, guess what? Their world is our world. Because our world is ruled by relativism. And relativism is the only absolute truth that our culture actually embraces. In fact, there's so much untruth peddled so constantly that everything has been cynically dismissed. And truth has become defined by whatever is deemed right in your own circumstance and at the own, in your own moment. And that's not much different than it was in Athens at Paul's time. You ever go through email and you find yourself deleting spam after spam after spam and you're deleting things so quickly you, you find that you accidentally delete an email that has something of importance? Well, I think that's the way our culture approaches truth. Delete, 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 and even dismissing the nuggets of truth that God is putting in front to woo them to himself. We've even coined a term we call it the cancel culture. Well, Paul steps into that kind of relativism and he builds common ground. How does he build common ground? He first of all knows that all people worship something. The truth is it's not just believers who worship, uh-uh. All humanity worships something or someone. Mankind is hardwired for worship. And all Paul does is put his finger on what it is they worship and then introduce new ground to that common ground. Francis Chan says it this way. He says that we were created to worship someone else with someone else. And by the way, that alone explains why we are so ready to get back to worshiping in person with one another, right? 
We all have something that produces a sense of awe and gratitude in our hearts. And anytime awe meets gratitude, well, you're finding out what you worship. And Paul, he knows that the Athenians are worshiping a something. In fact, you notice in the text, he says what you worship, not who you worship. Knowing that they have traded the someone for a something. And he says what you worship Well, I want to help you see that that thing, that what, is actually a who. It's a someone. And he moves from establishing common ground with them and understanding their vision of the good life and introducing the new ground of Jesus Christ. Look at the next verse, verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. And right now, Paul is speaking to the Stoics. He says that God is the creator, not the created. He says that God is the all-powerful Lord of heaven and earth. He's not a life force, he's the life giver. And after he speaks to the, to the Stoics, he turns to the Epicureans. Look at verse 26. From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and that he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. And God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. So to the Epicurean, Paul says God is involved. He's not detached. He's all present and he's ruling and he's reigning. And we give an account to him. And then he moves into this famous verse that I love so much personally. And it's verse 28 where he says, For in him we live and move and have our very being. As some of your own poets have said, we or his offspring. By the way, that is a powerful vision for life. Imagine if you could wake up every morning and you knew that in the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you live and you move and you have your very being. That kind of vision of life will actually propel you through a weary Monday and give energy and passion to life. And you notice Paul actually quotes one of the Greek poets which tells me that Paul actually read Greek poetry. You know, we can read the poets of our day, too. Our poets are filmmakers, musicians, academics of the day. And when we engage the, the, their work and their art, then we're understanding the worldview of our times. So the next time you see a film... The next time you hear a lyric, the next time you read a book, ask the question, what's their vision of the good life? And how is it that God fits into this? Because the answers you come up with will establish common ground with your culture and empower you to be able to introduce new ground of the gospel. Look how Paul did that in verse 29. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, We should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made 
by man's design and skill. No, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Now Paul clearly introduces Jesus Christ to the story. He doesn't spend his energy debating their worldview. He keeps the main thing the main thing, which is Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. And the reason that we move into our culture's worldview is, not, is because we're moved really by their spiritual condition. It's not because we're moved by their wrongness. Uh-uh. We have more passion to see them know Jesus than we do just to win an argument and a debate. We're not fueled by anger over their politics or philosophy. We are compelled by love to see them know the God who loves us. You know, Philip Yancey once said that no one ever converted to Christianity because they lost an argument. Now, the reality is an argument usually just produces more argument, and you really can't even find the main issue the longer you've argued. Come on, you've seen that even sometimes in a bad argument with your spouse where all of a sudden people begin to delete even the truth of, let's say, Jesus and what he means to their life because they're now caught up in all of the other side arguments. We see here that Paul engaged Athens masterfully. He was observant. He was compassionate. He was thoughtful. He was persuasive. And he was focused on Jesus Christ. Hey, recently, this last week, I heard some encouraging news of some of our people who are moving in the same way. Folks who've taken their community group and had to move them smaller because of the pandemic, and some have chosen to step out of those community groups and bond with a couple of others and, and start groups that, that are just focused on trying to reach their neighbors. And so the Hewlett's and the Schaefer's and the Pierce's and the Calico's and others have said that we're going to launch community groups for the sole purpose of trying to reach their neighbors. I can't wait to hear how that works. Look at how it worked out for Paul. Verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And at that, Paul left the council. A few became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. You know, the Bible has no record of a formal church being planted in Athens. It might have been, but we don't know that. What we do know is that there were three different responses to the truth of the gospel. Some people heard the gospel and rejected it and scoffed. Some people heard the gospel and were curious and intrigued. And some people heard the gospel and they believed the truth and they received Jesus Christ as Savior. It's going to be the same with us. As we witness of Jesus faithfully in our culture, we will have all three same results. So if there was no official house church planted in Athens, was Paul's ministry successful? Yes, 
Yes, because the definition of successful ministry is being a faithful and loving witness of Jesus Christ. The results, that's God's department. That's, that's above our pay grade. Our responsibility is to be a faithful and loving witness. So my question for you is this. How do you see yourself and the world in which God has placed you? Because you are on assignment. You're on assignment at your job, in your neighborhood, even in your hobbies and social networks. God has actually placed you there on purpose for a purpose. And when you pursue and chase that higher purpose, I promise you, you will experience a, an increased level of passion in both your home and your work and your personal life. Are you moved by the spiritual condition of your city? Are you moved enough in your heart to actually move into the city and engage people on their terms? Your world does have a vision of the good life. And you can enter that vision of the good life as a place of common ground. Not to agree with every idol that your culture has, your neighbor's own, but to use that to introduce the new ground of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Personally, I've found two tools that have helped me in that. Two books that I see as just super powerful. The first one is called Finding Common Ground, and it's written by Tim Downs, who's a, a friend and a mentor of mine. And decades ago, it actually won the Gold Medallion Book of the Year. By the way, his chapter on a biblical vision of work alone is worth the price of that book. But the second book is Tim Keller's The Reason for God. And it helps establish and answer some of the hard questions that the culture wrestles with as they look at Christianity. Both have been really helpful for me. Let me close with a, a question for you and, and, and then a challenge. The question is simply this. Who in your world, who in your sphere of influence needs the truth of Jesus? And I mean, picture their faces. Can you write down two or three names? Would you commit to writing those down and putting it in a journal if that's what you use or putting it on a post-it note on your bathroom mirror, but you would commit to praying for those two to three people specifically and asking God to use them or to use you in their lives? Would you take that step? And I promise if you do, you are going to see God do some unique things this fall. Not just in their lives, but in yours as well. I believe we're here on assignment. And that's good news. Not just for the culture around us, but for us as well. Let me pray for us. And even pray a benediction. There's a little benediction that I... I prayed over my children when they were young decades ago and even pray over my grandkids as well. Can I pray it over our lives as a congregation? May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face of grace and peace shine upon you so that you would glorify him everywhere you go and in everything you do. Amen. Mosaic, have a great week. We look forward to seeing some of you here back live, and the rest will keep joining you on live stream. God bless.